Welcome to the Board of Education, where troublemakers and system breakers gather to discuss how they are dismantling inequity in public education. Calling our meeting to order is Chairman of the Board, Jonathan Santos Silva. Welcome to another episode of the Board of Ed. Uh, I'm Jonathan Santos Silva, like the uh, like our lovely announcer said, and I'm glad to be back here with you, listener. I'm also uh, ever, as always, both glad and very fortunate to be here with Doc Miller, our producer, and my awesome co-host. How's it going, Doc? Uh, it is going. It is. It is a tough, tough time to be in our work, man. Like mm. it, it really is. I'm. I'm doing well. I'm. I'm honored and I'm privileged, but. But I know I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't know. I guess I should, that's the answer. I don't know. I don't know how I am, you know? <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. You know, part of me, you know, I have my, 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 my trusty standby response when folks ask me how we're doing is usually I say uh, I'm blessed and highly favored. Mm-hmm. And I mean it in, in every way because I am alive. Um, I have a beautiful family. I have amazing friends. I get to do this podcast with you mm-hmm. and share the voices of, more of my amazing friends who are, you know, trailblazing, innovating, disrupting, you know, doing great things on behalf of our children. And yet at the same time, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm like spiritually and mentally exhausted and drained from, you know, yet another incident of extreme violence uh, perpetrated behind a badge on another black person. You know, in this case, we're talking about, Jacob Blake, um, but, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and uh, on and on and on, you know, so it's just exhausting. And not not only as if it weren't enough, not only when we're talking about the the loss of life or, in this case, possible paralysis of Mr. Blake, um, but sometimes it's, for me, what's exhausting is the, the mental gymnastics that folks are willing to go through to justify some of these heinous acts rather than to just like say hey something's wrong something's wrong we need to talk we need to figure this out so i'm I'm exhausted but again i I, i'm blessed that i have the privilege to be with you to be with our listeners um and to share you know someone who i think i mean is a perfect guest for this time yeah you know david johns yeah i I, to to call out to to everyone listening i know you know a lot of the episodes that we heard thus far have been about the impact of COVID 19 on our students uh and on teachers and i I think this is really important i think uh david's voice is critically important here because COVID 19 is not the only disease that we have to grapple with right now and so so um I think it's, it's it's critically important that we make a a shift um, to 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 talk about this not only as it impacts us as 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 human beings who share this space that we call America, but um, how do we enter into the space to support kids when this is how we're feeling? Like how how are they feeling? Um, if if I, if our feelings are that complex and complicated. What about kids who are still learning to deal with with this? Right. And I think what's important to point out, too, is that um, a lot of what we've talked about with COVID-19 is that the virus itself is neutral. 
mm-hmm. doesn't pick and choose who gets sick, but so much of who does get sick and who contracts the virus, it does fall along lines of class and race because of who is, you know, who are black folks, uh, Filipino folks in, in the New York and New Jersey area, native folks in, in the Southwestern part of the country, the folks who are working in a lot of these quote unquote essential roles yeah. and who are overly, who are, are overly exposed. And then the, the, the lack of access to good healthcare, the virus itself wasn't racist, but the existence of the virus became a magnifier for racism and classism in the system and systems. And so I think that's the connection here. Yeah. We went to, to David Johns, who is the executive director. I didn't, I failed to mention of the National Black Justice Coalition, www.nbjc.org. And we wanted to talk about COVID, but what we ended up, you know, and how it's impacted folks, but what we ended up doing is getting right to the heart of the issue. You know, yeah. COVID is really a symptom. The issue is uh, racism, white supremacy, and inequity in our system. I also want to call out that the conversation that we had with David is very much reflective of the time in which the conversation is happening. And so um, it is, his is a critical voice. The topic is a critical point of conversation. And and to to those who are listening, who like me identify as white, I want to help us find a way to hear David honestly and to give the space for this conversation that needs to happen. The very least we can do uh, as white allies and as accomplices in our work of equity is to feel the discomfort that might come from hearing things um, that, that challenge our way of thinking. Um, so, so as, as you were listening to this, to this episode and to our conversation with David, um, particularly to, to, to our listeners who like me are white, I would encourage you to one, recognize that we are creating a space of sharing where this space isn't common. So we're going to hear David share very openly, and that might not be something you're used to, but that's why this space exists. Um, I want to encourage you as you hear things. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm taking this lead from Dolly Chug, who does uh, some really great work. Um, she wrote a book called The Person You Mean to Be. And these are sort of the, my guiding points that I often reflect back on. Uh, one, notice if while you're listening, you're making judgments and just pause, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, don't in your head go to counter the argument because ultimately David is sharing his lived experience. He is sharing his truth. And it's not something that we argue about or respond to. It is, this is my truth. And so, so I'm just, I'm sharing that to say that you may hear some conversation that is a well-intended uh, white person who, who considers yourself an ally in this work, challenges even your thinking. And, and if you find that, that, that fight or flight instinct happening in your brain, recognize it in the moment and live in the discomfort because it is the very least that we can do um, for our, our uh, black brothers and sisters now and always as, as we face these inequities in our communities. Thank you for that, Doc. I really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, as we pivot to, the, to hear David's voice here for the first time today, um, 
I asked him an innocuous question. I asked him how he's doing. It's, it comes from just me being so very relational. You know, being, it's really important to me to know how you're doing as we enter into any kind of conversation or space. Because if you tell me I feel like crap, you know, I'm going to respond differently than if you're very jovial and happy. I mean, he has a very powerful response to the question, and I thought it would be good to start there. I wish that there was another way for us to like start conversations. The the reflexive um, asking how am I has become vexing, um, especially in the last week, um, uh, because the direct answer is I'm not well, um, I'm weary, um, and I also know that um, the acknowledgement of the, the weight of, of of doing this work. Uh, and this work being compounded by what's happening in the world right now um, is not only lost on most, but it's also a truth that people don't really want, right? Um, and so I say that because members of my community, the um, folks who have inter the intersectional experience of being at a minimum black and queer, which is redundant, right? To be queer in America is to be black, um, but specifically to be black and um, um, also sexual minority, so LGBTQIA. Um, plus, I use the term same gender loving to really trouble the idea that gay is often a stand in for uh, white gay men. Um, our community hasn't been well for a long time, um, whether we're talking specifically about black queer people or black people generally. Um, for me, that's reflected in a lot of people acknowledging and naming that we don't want to go back to normal. Uh, what was normal for a lot of people pre-COVID, uh, pre-current protest, um, pre-whatever uh, people are using to mark this transition period. Um, wasn't really working for us. Um, and, and you layer on top of that, these current um, crises, it just compounds things. I think the last thing I'll say is a couple of years ago, uh, more than a couple at this point, Gloria Latting Billings, uh, the indomitable uh, sort of researcher, uh, education guru, person that stands in praxis, really like the space where policy meets practice, um, gave a talk at Columbia and it was titled, And Now They're Wet. And the point she was making, uh, simple yet profound, is that so many of the think pieces that were uh, being written and the space that was given to people to talk about things as if they were new was really a reflection of things that had always been. Students, uh, particularly Black, uh, poor, uh, disabled, um, uh, non-native um, students had always existed in a separate system, uh, literally public schools that were um, uh, um, woefully behind, uh, inadequately funded, um, uh, just se separate and apart from the private school system that their, their counterparts could um, enjoy. And after Katrina, the biggest difference is that they were wet, right? Um, and so I say that to acknowledge now, while most people are referring to uh, literal fires in communities, um, we should all be mind mindful of the fact that the soul of our country has been on fire since transatlantic enslavement since white folks created postal codes to steal land from indigenous people, um, since we acknowledge publicly that this administration was locking up kids in cages, which is no different than families being locked up in public housing. Um, and now you layer on top of that um, a growing body of evidence around the uh, disregard of black life, right? Again, not new, we know that um, uh, uh, to most well-intentioned white people, they only care about the three-fifths of us that benefit them politically. Um, and so you layer on top of that the frustration uh, with uh, continuing to be told to be patient um, and that we'll have the promise of justice, uh, which has rendered so many people willing to literally risk their lives in a global pandemic uh, to protest. Uh, so that's a really long way of saying that I'm tired 
um, I'm weary um, and I'm hopeful that we will take advantage of this moment um, to contribute to the movement. Thank you. I'm sure you have some ideas on how we might be able to take advantage of the uh, moment. And I wonder if you could uh, share some of those ideas for us. What would you like to see come of this? Uh, nothing will make the loss of yeah. life worth it, uh, but so that we don't um, uh, miss the moment and miss the opportunity. What would you like to see happen? I think three things. Uh, one, I wrote a piece out, uh, sent it to you that was published by The Grio yesterday. Um, that was really a reflection of the volume of uh, text that I received from my friends who were acting as emissaries on behalf of well-intentioned white people um, who all send some version of, how are you? Tell me what to do, right? Which on the surface is a, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for in this moment. Um, it's innocuous. It seems innocuous, right? Like it's a request for help. Uh, but what I set in is that there are few things in our country um, that require white people to do anything, at a minimum to sit with the contradiction of acknowledging that people have experiences, um, disproportionately have experiences that you would not want to have yourself, right? Um, and so the first thing that I want is for white folks to sit in this. Right, the, 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 the Latin root of the word educare is to draw out. The process of learning is uncomfortable by design, but for so many white people, they don't have to experience discomfort. We rewrite history to benefit them. Um, uh, there are systems that shield them from having to acknowledge the, 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 the pernicious ways that white supremacy and anti-blackness and all these other things, trans massage noir and the like, um, show up um, to create, um, legitimize, uh, perpetuate and make invisible at the same time white supremacy, right? Our, our systems of oppression. Um, and I want, I want non-Black people to sit in that and to feel the discomfort and, and right? Like to me, it is the, um, you'll never be able to understand what it's like to have to develop the uh, reflexive memory to, uh, to say their names, right? Um, uh, what it feels like to, um, to not have to watch a video to know, to, to know vividly what happens, right? Um, um, I don't know how to describe the, the, the feeling that comes over me even in this moment when I think about hearing George Floyd call for his mother. And so for white folks who will never understand all of the weight of that, just sit with your pain, right? Uh, read a Robin D'Angelo article, um, uh, bring together the book club and talk about how um, white people being able to weaponize the police is a manifestation of why of all of these things that, and how we got here. That's one. Um, the second thing is that um, I will celebrate and accept um, the the investment that people are willing to make in this moment, acknowledging that it's about this moment. Um, people are um, writing checks to the National Black Justice Coalition, which I appreciate. Uh, people are asking uh, how they can volunteer. Uh, which is necessary. Um, and I am clear that it is about this moment, right? Uh, and so I, I encourage anyone who wants to uh, find a way to be active. Um, I don't need your um, a request for help, but I will accept the check, right? Um, again, acknowledging that we have been doing this work and we will continue to do this work um, even after people have resumed um, whatever it is that they hold on to is important in their lives. Uh, and so the second thing that I hope happens is that people share power, right? Literal 
um, resources, um, finances, time, uh, space, um, and the like. Um, and then the third thing is that I hope this is an opportunity for us to uh, reset and reimagine. Um, I am frustrated at present by the limitations of language that make even having these conversations difficult. Two examples, um, I am a black man who leads a civil rights organization that is intentional and unapologetic in acknowledging that as long as there have been black people, there have been black LGBTQIA people. I've had no less than a dozen reporters ask me, what should gay people be doing in this moment? So then I look at myself like, do you want the black part of me to answer this without acknowledgement of everything else that is important? Or do you want to trouble the way that power works and you asking me a question to suggest that I don't exist, right? Similarly, I want to make plain for everyone that like we live in a, in a society that um, allows us all to think about justice as an abstract term that is applied in very distinct ways. And I am bothered to my core about the fact that white people get to, again, call the cops and weaponize them knowing that they will be protected. And black people, when it comes to justice, at best, we can hope that if we are murdered by a police officer, a thug with the badge, justice for us is the hope that the killer might be arrested. History shows that the chances of that person being arrested and then charged are slim to none. Them being arrested, charged, and then serving time, very rarely if it all happens. And because they have designed these systems to protect themselves, even in the worst case scenario, most officers are able to recertify in another police department in another state and collect the pension even after somebody has been murdered. And so acknowledging that there's power and precision and that words matter, it is incredibly important for me that we take advantage of this time to revisit uh, revisionist history uh, and to reimagine terms like justice um, so they actually have meaning. Uh, meaning that is applicable to all um, citizens of this country, um, not um, uh, restricted based on genetic code or zip code. Yeah. That point about you know justice being open to all mm -hmm. is really the same call that many of us in education are making when we talk yep. about excellence, right? We we don't want where a kid lives, or who a kid's parents are, or what they look like to determine their access to something excellent. We just we want it to be a right of every child. And it's the same thing for justice. And so that's, again, you know, I know we talked about how this episode feels a little different. This conversation feels a little different. Um, but it's the justice and fairness and equity. They're just like fundamental human experiences we want everyone to have. Yeah. I, the other thing that's striking uh, me about uh, the ongoing conversation is how David is bringing in intersectionality in a way that is, that is so palpable. Um, and, and we, we can, in an effort to make it easier or to make it quote unquote, more comfortable to talk about putting, putting a label on a, on a child's identity or a colleague's identity. It, it is a lot easier, but, it subtracts so much of who that person is and who we are. Um, and so, so, you know, David uh, honestly is, is the first of our guests who've really delved into um, 
how how the current context of the world that we're living in impacts um, students who identify with the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm. And so um, I really appreciated uh, later in the conversation that we're getting ready to listen to now, Jonathan, you asked him, so, so what can we do? What should we be doing to serve our black queer students who have experienced Trump? Uh, three things come to mind. So for those who don't know, um, I uh, accept the calling on my life as an educator and celebrated, uh, taught uh, elementary school as well as college um, and had the privilege of doing a lot of work with students uh, of all ages, um, both in my previous role at the White House uh, for President Obama, to be clear, um, uh, and now my role at MBJC. Um, one, with regard to um, Black LGBTQ youth, um, we have to appreciate that the way that even we have this conversation, right, there are a whole lot of Black youth who engage in queer relationships or have queer behaviors who will never identify as queer, in part because of the way that the language works, right? Um, and I say that to say that we have to be mindful of not trying to design programs that um, contribute to students thinking that they need to uh, split themselves into halves or fourths or eighths, um, but really accepting and appreciating that too often educators uh, are not intentional in celebrating difference, such that any difference, uh, in particular that which is not white, uh, uh, heteronormative, uh, cis, uh, able-bodied, uh, uh, English-speaking, Protestant, all of those things, right? Anything that is different from that becomes seen as a deficit. If, if we shift our thinking, right, uh, and employ practices uh, um, that are anchored in critical race theory and, and, and critical pedagogy, um, that have been talked about in the work of Yolanda Celia Ruiz and Chris Emden and Bettina Love and really accept and appreciate that all of our babies are unique learners. And the way that we approach developing IEPs for our babies that have disabilities should really be approached and applied to all of our students because each of them have something that makes them unique. Uh, and so acknowledging that and then shifting our practice such that we make space to celebrate um, diversity um, that we provide language and connections to history and ways of making meaning so that all of our babies feel seen um, and valued and loved is incredibly important. Um, the last thing that I'll say is that we have an obligation to make sure that our babies are well. And, and what I know based on the work of the National Black Justice Coalition is that they are not. Last winter, we contributed to a report that was published and uh, submitted to uh, Congress. We did it in partnership with the Congressional Black Caucus. It was how to ring the alarm and it was a reflection on the sad reality that in the last two decades, the suicide rates for black kids have increased. They've doubled um, in many regards, uh, uh, which is um, a sad thing, but it's especially sad when you acknowledge that um, for every other group of children based on race and ethnicity, the numbers have gone in the opposite direction, right? Um, and so that was before COVID. Um, what we now know is that students uh, experienced the disruption of thinking that they might have had an extended or special uh, break, uh, but then not ever being able to return um, and uh, close out um, a school year or relationships in the way that they have been accustomed to. There are children that have literally been waiting their entire lives to engage in rituals that we talk about uh, as being so important and necessary uh, for maturation, like going to prom or graduation, uh, who did not have that. Um, I had a conversation this morning with a mentee of mine who was forced to go home when her college shut down. Um, and she's now in an unsafe space where she is literally attacked uh, uh, verbally uh, by people who are not affirming of her identity. 
Um, so I say all of that to say that we as educators uh, must be mindful of the mental uh, health needs of all of our babies. Too often, uh, we ask them to demonstrate what they know and have learned without asking them how they are. Um, and my hope is that this disruption, um, this global disruption, uh, will allow us to center um, and understanding that unless we attend to the social and emotional uh, well-being of our babies, then it shouldn't matter if they can read or write. Just taking on this point for a second, I was speaking to a friend recently, and she, I mean, she, I felt like she hit it on the head. She said, I can literally hear in my ears teachers welcoming, quote unquote, welcoming kids back to school and saying, all right, so y'all been off for six months. Now it's time to get to work as if this was a vacation. And right. I just wonder, like, if you were able to hear that, what would you say in that moment to that educator or to the educator who's preparing to welcome kids back in that fashion? How would you advise them differently? I would just ask them to stop um, and to be mindful of where we are um, and to accept that often our um, greatest value as an educator is in the ability to acknowledge what is and sit in the discomfort of figuring out what should be. Um, I don't know of, uh, I think you would have to be incredibly privileged um, in, in every respect uh, to have not been affected by what is going on in the world with regard to the health crisis, um, the, the health crisis directly affected, uh, connected to COVID are, are, are the underlying mental health crisis that I mentioned the economic crisis and insecurities that affect Black and Latinx folks in particular ways. Uh, members of our community are most likely uh, to be employed if they are at all in gig economies, our creative roles where they are not going to receive government assistance. Um, all of those things affect us in many ways, right? Uh, let's just imagine that a student as well being uh, uh, socially isolated in a house with a parent who is stressed. Um, will have an, an impact, right? Like we, we know based on, on data and science that uh, prolonged exposure to toxic stress and poverty um, has a physiological impact, right? It's like walking around with, with sleep deprivation, that does something to people. Um, and so we should all be mindful of that. And, and, and any educator who is either unwilling or unable to appreciate that uh, should consider another profession. Too often we engage in educational malpractice because adults don't wanna do work. Um, they simply want to do that, which they've always done. Um, this global pandemic is uh, uh, inviting us to rethink that and to ask some critical questions. Why do we do the things that we've done? Why do we continue to tell kids that Christopher Columbus discovered anything when they can Google and know damn well that he didn't, right? Um, and then we expect for them to think of us as uh, trustworthy people when we look them in the face and tell them that that's just what they need to learn. Um, this is an opportunity for us to do different. Um, and again, anybody who doesn't want to should uh, uh, understand the privilege of being an adult um, and leave, right? Our kids are often compelled by law uh, to move through these spaces and, and, and we owe them better. Yeah. Yeah. The, the echoes of the brilliant voices on this season of the Board of Ed continue. Um, if, if you visited the Board of Ed, if you're a regular listener, you heard Anishay Wright talking about this being the, you know, right now might be the disruption that we needed. Um, we, we talked to David Johns. We talked to Diana uh, Knoyer about how the disruptions that we're experiencing right now 
are an opportunity. They are, they are, it, it, we are opportunity laden with the chance to do things better. You know, we've been, we've been operating on that hashtag, uh, mm -hmm. hashtag back to better, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to put the Legos back in the same order, right? We can build something new. The pieces are on the ground. Let's build something new. It's, it, it's such an important point. It is. And, the, and by the way, I saw that smile on your face. That was the smile of a dad. Uh, I know this is a podcast, <laughs> nobody can see you, but I can't. Um, that's the smile of a dad who stepped on more than one Lego right there. <laughs> Talk about I trauma, I wish they right? would put the Legos back in the same place, uh, the toy box. Uh, but no, the, the, that's such a great analogy because we do run the risk. If we pull the Legos back out and we take out the instructions, we're going to build the same boat. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go either to a different set of instructions, an alternative vision for what you can do with that set. Um, and for and us, let's who be are, honest, a Lego boat don't float. No, it doesn't. <laughs> like this analogy keeps going. A Lego boat does not float. It's not, no. it's not what it's built to do. You know, and so like we have to look elsewhere, right? Because we, most of us have gone to the same schools or the same trainings. Mm -hmm. We share similar perspectives. We're going to keep building the system that we always had. Yep. Uh, and I think this is why it's powerful where um, David encourages us to maybe get out of our echo chambers and start to look elsewhere for our inspiration. Talk to the babies, talk to the students. I'm vexed by the reflexive habit that adults have of forgetting that when we were younger, one of the things that would vex any of us is adults not listening to us or not valuing our opinions, our experiences, um, and ways of making sense of the world. Um, adults still to this day, educators who understand and will celebrate student voice will then render it invisible by reading letters that students write at conferences rather than allowing students to speak for themselves. Uh, and so uh, what I am excited about is that the National Black Justice Coalition has relaunched the uh, Thriving Summits uh, is what we call them. Uh, Jonathan, you've heard me talk about this in other spaces, um, but it is a program that essentially acknowledges, celebrates, and supports our babies as experts. Um, and then we center and support them in the process of um, offering up recommendations, uh, uh, praxis, right, both policy and practice, that will lead to the kinds of reform, often educational, but really community social reforms, that will, make, will allow them to thrive. Um, and so I'm sitting in this because what I dream is that we celebrate our babies as experts, and support them in co-constructing opportunities to learn. Um, and what I know now is that the, the, the way that I see the world as a 30-something uh, year old professional um, is not the way that I saw the world when I was a student. Um, and it would be um, irresponsible of me um, to um, create a system for students that have to experience it now without them being able to drive that process. Right. Um, there's all kind of research about achievement gaps and opportunity gaps and not enough of them make clear that those gaps are by design. Right. They exist because public schools, tra traditional public schools and, and the legacy in which they were recreated after our revolution here are designed to select and sort and to select and sort students based on these socially constructed ideas of, of who should get privilege and who should not. Even the way that we use data. Um, as, as educators and as um, 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 policy entrepreneurs, it's problematic. We over-rely on quantitative data um, that, again, ignores all of these realities and nuances that I've named. 
And so I'm looking forward to the revision with students, the kinds of data that would be helpful to them in their learning and development, cognitively, socially, and emotionally, because we know that most standardized tests are reflective of the biases that exist in the world and simply just let us know that white supremacy is real. I now get to benefit from the work that people have done, the privilege I've inherited and acquired, the, the language that I now have, my ability to, to, to hold space and say to people, you have to reckon with this, um, to be able to, to shift things and to trouble things. And, 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 and again, the last thing is, is the thing that I'm most proud of is that the work is really about allowing the babies to be centered. Um, and for them to dictate where we go um, so that adults can sort of turn down our egos and practice what Yolanda Sailor Ruiz calls uh, critical humility, um, which for me is the ability to, to show up and ensure that um, our babies thrive. I keep using thrive. That's a term that Kia Darling-Hammond, a researcher at Stanford University, the daughter of Linda Darling-Hammond, uh, has come up with really to acknowledge that too often um, indigenous folks, um, folks with disability, um, poor folks, Black, Latinx folks, uh, when we uh, seek help, uh, mental help, uh, mental health support or um, uh, coaching, usually the, the, the best we can hope for is that we'll be all right, right? It's usually like, what coping skills do you need in order to show up at that racist ass job and not cut somebody out, right? I dream of a world where we can all thrive, where people can be uh, and whatever that means to them and choosing how to participate in whatever they want to, whenever they want to, without the threat or um, fear of violence, abuse or discrimination, um, such that, that everybody can thrive. Um, that, that's what I dream. And, and to the extent that the public education system is a part of that, I'm going to work with some babies to co-construct that dream. I, so even before I met you um, and I was following you on social media, you know, teach the babies the babies, the baby. This is something that I just know that's genuine. It's not like a new slogan that you developed. Um, I think like just taking that face value in and of itself, like centering the babies is, is critical. And it's, it's, it's in some ways revolutionary in a system that so often silences our babies. But I was wondering if there was anything um, like a backstory deeper to like when you yeah, first where it came from. Yeah, where that came yeah. from. Yeah, um, so it came, it, 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 there are three touch points to this uh, as I uh, have been invited to reflect upon this. One is, um, I was, I, this is my third tour of duty at Columbia. Uh, so as an undergraduate student, there was a really dope um, design duo that were making these like graphic tees. This is before like protest tees, like the one that I have on now that says Not Today Colonizer was in vogue. Um, and one of the t-shirts was a really bright yellow um, t-shirt that had the picture of uh, Malcolm X with the shotgun in the window um on it and a silhouette of him um so i loved it and wore it as often as i could and then another shirt was bright pink that had a sparkle like literal glitter and i hate rainbows and all things gay in that regard um uh, but glitter to say teach the babies um and a friend bought it uh for me and i would wear it and this is a, this is well before i again accepted this calling that i had on my life as, as an educator i'd always worked with students um i volunteered uh at summer camps and almost got fired because I was invested in what was going on with my campers more so than operating a ropes course, um, was always invested in equity and showing up as an advocate, um, but literally struggled with the idea of becoming a teacher in a world where every message I received as a first generation college graduate, especially at an institution like Columbia University because of what that means to white people are in worlds of white uh, supremacy and oppression, uh, said that the last thing I was supposed to do was to teach. 
right? Uh, we are taught to take over countries and corporations, uh, and we don't value education in the way in which we do. And so um, over time, especially uh, reconciling not only um, being a teacher, but an elementary school teacher, I taught kindergarten. I'm a six foot five black man who I suck up oxygen when I walk in a room. Um, and I cannot tell you how much of my experience as a teacher, as an educator was responding to anxieties people have just about men being around children, let alone black men being around children. And so Teach the Babies, I started to like write it. It was in my email signature. I would say it as often as possible for two reasons. One is because I watched so many of my white colleagues do things. They would trip over themselves to do shit for white kids that, that they would trip over themselves to do things for white kids that they would never do for a black child. And some of it was just about language, right? Like think about how often you hear people refer to little black children as like little man or little, little mama, Right. Um, we don't allow black babies to be children, right? I, it hurts me every time I see black children protesting. Like that shit sits in your spirit. And, 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 and too often they are ushered out of that. I have two nephews now, Jet and Jax, um, eight months old. And I am committed to ensuring that they uh, know about rainbows and cartoons and coloring books for as long as they possibly can, because they are pushed out of the ability to be kids and love anime and explore all kinds of things that white kids get to do even when they're grown. And so, so much of it, it, it literally was a beseechment to well-meaning white folks to practice what they preach by seeing black children as children, as babies, right? Even the difference between babies and children, when we talk about babies, like people want to coddle them. They want to protect them. They want to like, they change the way that they speak around babies. I want that same energy to be applied to black babies. I've asked you a lot. You've given me a lot. You've given us, you know, the listeners of the Board of Ed podcast a lot, and I appreciate it. I was just wondering, like, is there anything that you want to share, you want to add that I did not ask about? Something that I would be remiss if I ended this without giving you the, plat the, 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 the forum to, to address. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here having this conversation with you. I've got pictures of Barack Obama on this wall. Uh, James Baldwin is sitting over here looking at me on this one. I've got Malcolm X to my right. Looking over on, on your shoulder, yeah. <laughs> I got Dr. King on a, a, a piece right here uh, made by my brother, Ron Draper. Um, uh, we are often, we often show up physically in isolation, but I'm clear that I am always with and covered by our ancestors. And it is not lost on me that you do uh, an incredible service for parts of our community that um, uh, too many uh, throughout our country don't even remember. Um, and so I see you, I value you. Um, this was important. Um, and again, I know that, I mean, this is, this is the village stuff. Um, yeah, I would just encourage folks to continue to push mm. um, to be unapologetic and intentional in naming white supremacy and anti-blackness, uh, to not be afraid of it. I, I, I think that um, enjoy is not quite the right word, um, but I'm, I am, I've, I have found solace in what happens when you shine a light on white supremacy and when you question um, people's reflexive ways of making sense of things, right? Um, I wrote, I'm writing an op-ed now about 
um, police shootings um, and this idea that um, it's not motivated by race, mm-hmm. right? The qualitative and quantitative data suggest otherwise. Uh, but that doesn't stop people from saying that like white people too are shot, right? Or crime happens in white neighborhoods too. Um, are white people also have feelings? Yes, they do. But again, as Robin D'Angelo said, not all feelings are valid at every time. Um, and in particular, if those feelings um, affirm oppression um, or silence the ability for us to shift, they don't belong. And so this is a longer way of um, me saying, speak full truth to power, especially in the moments when it shakes your soul. To be clear, that's not me. That came from Dr. Manny Mirabal. Uh, one of my professors at Columbia, God rest his soul. Uh, but I do think that that's what will change things, right? When I look at um, the friends I have who are doing dope shit in the world, um, the Tamika Mallory's and Angela Rise and uh, Joshua Dubois, um, I'm gonna get in trouble because I shouldn't start naming people. But when I look at people who are, who are shifting shit and giving people hope, it is because they are speaking full truth to power. And, and not just on some like, this is what I feel, but like we study this shit, right? Like we have to. Um, uh, Amanda recorded a video the other day, literally on a trampoline. It was like, stop asking me what y'all should do, white people. I'm on my trampoline, I'm busy, right? And I thought about it and I wrote about it too in, in this uh, uh, article on the grill that I keep referencing, but like white people didn't ask our um, assistants or for us to consult when they um, designed the transatlantic slave trade. They didn't need our help to um, identify that they would only uh, acknowledge three-fifths of us when it was uh, to their political benefit. They didn't ask, I don't think, a a Native person about developing the parcel postal system so they could literally steal land and claim it as their own. And and so I struggle with um, us doing work for them um, in this time, unless it is forcing them to account for all of the reasons that we continue to come to this place of trying to reconcile these contradictions. Um, and so if there are babies listening, just continue to be brilliant. Um, ask people uncomfortable questions. Um, hold the adults around you accountable for giving you that which you need to thrive. Um, to the, uh, the parents and family members know that uh, a child's first and most important educator is his or her parents. Um, and if you can simply hold the belief that your baby is, is deserving of the cognitive, social, and emotional support that white kids take for granted, um, then that in and of itself is enough, right? There are organizations like ours. Um, there are people doing the work that you're doing, Jonathan. There are members of the uh, Education Leaders of Color Network that we're both a part of. Um, shout out to Ed Locke, who are who have been and will remain committed to doing this work. Um, let us know how we can help. And that right there is why we started the Board of Ed podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you leave it up to the Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, or anyone else, there are like two or three black or brown voices that they have certified. And it doesn't matter what their expertise in it is in, they're going to interview them for everything. Yep. And uh, I just, that's not how this game should work. Yep. You know, there is no white spokesperson. And newsflash, there is no black or Latinx or LGBTQ or any other group spokesperson. There are incredible voices like David and like our other board members. And like he mentioned, there are great organizations like Edlock, like NBJC, who are in the communities doing this work. They're of the communities. Um, and we need to rely on those voices to be our, 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 our partners and our experts in this. Because otherwise, to your point earlier, 
we're going to keep building the same Lego boat. <laughs> that, that won't float, right? <laughs> and and I, I want to point out, um, uh, theboardofed.com, we have a section to meet the board. And I imagine, I don't want to speak on their behalf uh, because their, their voices are brilliant by themselves. So I don't need to speak on their behalf. But I would imagine that all of them would say, we are here to help. And so if you want to connect or learn more about David's work, uh, if you want to learn more about any of our other board members that we've had on the season thus far, or that might be coming up, uh, theboardofed.com. That's the B-O-R-E-D of ed.com. You can also find us uh, on social media. We're on Facebook, The Board of Ed, um, on Instagram and Twitter, at the underscore Board of Ed. And of course, hopefully you have found us on your favorite podcast um, uh, app. And so, so you can listen at theboardofed.com or you can, uh, of course, uh, check out uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn. Um, I'm going to run out of time before I can fit them all in. So we're, we're all over the place. Um, so we want to make sure that these brilliant voices have the platform to be heard um, because there is a lot to be said. Yeah. And their voices are the best to say it. Yes. And I, I, you know, I'm going to leave with a couple of thoughts. The first one is I was on a, a beautiful call yesterday. Uh, it was talking about the importance of creating um, affinity spaces for our young people of color. And I think in these days, days and times, what we're going to, it's important for us as adults as well. And that's mm-hmm. what the board of ed is about. We want to be, even if it's just virtual, a space where you come and feel affirmed you feel challenged in a good way, but affirmed essentially in the core of who you are, that what you believe and what you do is important. One of the quotes from uh, one of the speakers, Sean Hartnett, who was a school leader in DC, he said, being heard is so close to being loved that it is virtually indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. And so I go back to what you said earlier, Doc, you know, David Johns, you know, our, our incredible board member, he said some, he shared some difficult thoughts from his perspective. Right. And, um, if you listen through and you heard that and it challenges you to do your work in a different way, in a better way, that's the point. Yeah. And, and, and like, like uh, we started off with, please, if, especially if like me, you're, you're a a white person who, who heard some things that challenged me sit in that discomfort. Um, That, that is an act of service. And that is, that is a way that we get to the point of growing is, is to hear the things that are hard to hear because that's how the system continues to perpetuate itself. We just ignore where mm-hmm. we become willfully unaware and we've got to move to a space of willful awareness. And right. the only way to do that is to sit, to listen and to feel that discomfort. Yes. And, and, and to our BIPOC listeners, take a page, from Mr. David Johns's book and, and, and know that your voice in its totality, unfiltered, un, you know, not watered down for anyone is powerful and important and it needs to be heard. So to the extent that you have been holding something in and it needs to be shared, find your platform, use your voice. It's the only way we're gonna, we're gonna move anywhere. And, 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 and I'm gonna end this as always. And, and, and it's even as we go through all this stuff that we're processing, your work and your voices are important now more than ever before as you are working to create schools and classrooms and communities where our young people of color our BIPOC young people are safe and loved and where our 
LGBTQ, two-spirited, same-gender loving children feel like they are affirmed and loved, uh, that's the most important work we can do on God's green earth. And so I want to send you off into the into your into your back into the real world with with that message. I want to thank Mr. David Johns. I want to give him send him a shout out as he continues to work on his PhD at Columbia. Get it, boy. Yes. Get it. Doctor, I can't wait to be one of the first in line to call you doctor, sir. Thank you for being on our show and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the Board of Ed. Stay bored. Yeah. Yeah.